Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. So after eight months, 30 episodes, over 1,200 minutes of political nonsense, and on top of all of that, we were shortlisted for Podcast of the Year at the Annual Magazine Awards. We've even seen the podcast make headlines in other people's newspapers and magazines. So if you're looking for anything in the world of Scottish politics, you need to get it here from the Holyrood team. I want to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support and for sharing this show with your peers. As you know, episode 30 was Liam Kirkcaldy's last. He's now departed from Holyrood to join Crisis, the homeless charity. But with that, we have new members joining. And with the new team and the new year, the show will be given a new lease of life. But don't worry, the show will remain mostly the same. You'll still get the Holyrood take on all the politics, policy and pure nonsense that comes out of our devolved administration and across the wider political landscape. But you'll also hear more from the Holyrood team. We'll be trying new formats and who knows, there may even be more on the horizon. But for today's episode, I'll be joined by Jenny Davidson. And here's what's coming up on today's show. It could be. It just feels like this feels like such a Boris Johnson moment. I mean, we're we're descending into jingoism and we've got this talk of putting Navy gunboats on standby. I mean, we've we've got to the point where we're talking about all out war uh, in the English Channel with the French. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like longer than a year. You can hardly believe that this time last year we were focusing on a general election with so much that's, that's happened since. And, you know, we all thought this year would be just about Brexit. And actually, it's very much been a kind of almost afterthought at the end of the year. But that's, you know, the situation is no excuse. In fact, it's, you know, the opposite, that it's, you know, even more reason not to be in the situation we're in politicians were to vote last week on those services being improved. There was an amendment put into the bill which basically said it was six little words and it was replace the word gender with sex but basically that led to quite a furore didn't it? So we've just finished our last magazine before Christmas and this is part of the programme where we normally talk about good week and bad week so who do you think said a bad week, Mandy? Oh, I think that's a fairly obvious one, Jenny, isn't there? I mean, I think it's a bad week for Britain because the clock is clearly running down to where we thought we might be a year ago, a no-deal Brexit. We're just getting to the end of the transition period, uh, December 31st, and it still looks like there is uh, major disagreements, specifically around fishing, I think. Um, so, yeah, I guess the bad week is for Britain. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it. I kind of thought we might get to this point, but at the same time, it's actually horrifying that we are here, you yeah. know, and, and that Boris Johnson is kind of only now really engaging properly with the talks, actually, isn't he? It makes you worry, though. I wonder what would have happened if he'd engaged any earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it might be worse rather than better. You think? Well, it could be. It just feels like this feels like such a Boris Johnson moment. I mean, we're we're descending into jingoism and we've got this talk of putting Navy gunboats on standby. I mean, we've we've got to the point where we're talking about all out war uh, in the English Channel with the French. I know it's absolutely crazy. I mean, if you if you kind of did some sort of uh, I don't know Monty Python version of um, British politics right now, it would look pretty similar to what's actually happening. I mean, yeah, gun gunboats. I I would never have predicted that even from Boris Johnson actually. 
I know, it just seemed, and actually the scenes last week in the papers, it's not even about the battle being waged, I suppose, at sea. I mean, we've got now got queues and queues of, of lorries trying to get in and out of the ports, which is what was already predicted. But they're talking about, um, you know, food and medicine shortages, rising prices. I, I mean, the whole economic situation that we all knew was going to happen. I mean, you would have thought any kind of half-sensible prime minister faced by what we're all faced with with this pandemic, might have actually gone cap in hand to the EU and asked for a further extension. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's made it so much worse that, you know, so so many parts of the economy and business have already been decimated that, you know, it's a double blow. So having this happening at the same time, it's just, I mean, it's, it's absolute craziness. And then this kind of contradiction on the, you know, the one hand of saying we're going to go the extra mile, you know, we're going to keep talking until the very last minute with negotiations, you know, really, really try and get there. And at the other hand saying, yeah, we've got our, our gunboats and the Navy and the helicopters and whatever all ready to go just the minute we, we don't get a, a deal, which is, you know, apparently very, very likely, Boris Johnson is saying. I mean, it's terrifying, really. I suppose you could say that as we face economic Armageddon, um, Boris Johnson's idea of levelling down will actually happen. We'll just all be down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, you know, we're going from kind of uh, lows to highs at the moment between the uh, the vaccine and, and Brexit. So, uh, yeah, which, you know, is, uh, is a good uh, link to saying that that's at least a positive. That, that would be a good week, wouldn't it? Actually, we're... We've got the vaccine now and that's being rolled out. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. That whole kind of, uh, it's been a roller coaster of a year. And actually, it's hard to believe that it's almost a year to the day um, that Johnson won his majority in the 2019 general election and basically was given a mandate to take us into all this nonsense. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like longer than a year. You can hardly believe that this time last year we were focusing on a general election with so much that's that's happened since and you know we all thought this year would be just about Brexit and actually it's very much been a kind of almost afterthought at the end of the year but that's you know the situation is no excuse in fact it's you know the opposite that is you know even more reason not to be in the situation we're in. Exactly I mean you and I've talked about this but it feels like the whole kind of year has taken on quite a a surreal feel that it's taken us into a different dimension and actually for this uh, magazine that's just gone to print I did an interview with Amy Callahan, the MP that won her seat last December in the general election she took Joe Swinson's seat and for Amy in particular this has been one hell of a year. I mean, she, you know, as a young woman, she'd already fought cancer twice during her teens. And she suffered a terrible brain hemorrhage in June of this year during the pandemic, caused a stroke, caused all kinds of other problems. Um, But actually, I found the interview with her really uplifting because she, she certainly wants to fight and fight on into the next year and really give thanks to the NHS that have saved her life. And she wants to use that resilience for good. And we're going to listen to that interview now. I know. Feels like a lifetime ago. But it does, yeah. Not actually. So woke up on the 10th of June and had a very normal day. I actually asked a question in, in the House of Commons, which was the corner of my living room. And then suddenly in the evening, just took, took a brain hemorrhage, yeah. causing me to have a stroke from a previously very manageable health condition. 
So what was the, the manageable health condition previously? It's called an AVM. Uh-huh. So when I was 19 and was diagnosed with skin cancer, they done an MRI scan and found this condition called an AVM, which affects just a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. You get you have it from birth. Um, and it's basically an abnormal collection of blood vessels in a certain part of the body, might be in, in my brain. And it probably, it felt like a curse at the time because obviously you go in with skin cancer and then you find out you've also got a brain condition. But it was probably a blessing that I found out about it because on the 10th of June, I felt acutely aware that that's what was actually happening to me. So had you, given that you knew about that condition, were you aware that perhaps something might happen again at some point? Again after the 10th of June? No, again. Uh, the fact that you knew that you had the condition from being a teenager. Yeah, they'd, they'd said that there was a, obviously a chance of it happening, but you're talking about a very, very low percentage chance. Yeah. So it never felt real that it would actually happen and the 10th of June did come as a shock. Yeah, and so you woke up, what, not really knowing what had happened? Uh, so I phoned an ambulance myself and I reached for, I actually reached for a toilet roll, I reached for something and my whole arm just had no movement and no no power in it at all. Went to stand up and my leg completely gave way as well and then suddenly the pain in my, my head started and it was just absolutely unbe unbearable. There's no other, other way to describe it, it was the most horrific pain I've ever felt and hope never to feel it again. And then phoned an ambulance, Sean came home fortunately at that point and then did he know at that point? When he came home he oh. didn't he wasn't no he didn't know what to, to expect when he came in the door. So he, he had no idea even that no. he'd collapsed. No. He was just coming home. Yeah. Right. He was it was his mum's birthday, he was um, dropping off her gift to the front door and then came home to find me. Right. And obviously then fortunately the first responders were, were you know, incredible as, as they all are I think and kind of dealt with everything quite quickly because I think time is of the essence with this, this kind of brain injury and I got to the Queen Elizabeth very, very quickly and they, they operated that evening. So do, were you able to say to them at that point that you thought it might be this? I think I did, yeah. I, I, say, I said to the, the woman on the phone when I phoned an ambulance that I had an AVM in my brain and that I was concerned that's what was happening yeah. because I, took, I kept taking a second and thinking is this the worst headache ever because they'd said it would be the worst headache and I'm like is this the worst headache ever but I couldn't think because it was like literally penetrating every single part of me like it was every single thought I couldn't think about anything but how sore my head was and that's when I was like it has to be. At that moment because we'll go back to this um about when you were a teenager but did you think you were dying at that point? I don't think I let myself I didn't let myself get to, to think that, to be honest. I was I was obviously really scared. I can't pretend that I wasn't. I was really scared. But just kind of put my, my faith and my hope and my trust in the first responders and the team that were going to kind of greet me at the hospital. I'd, um, I'd actually had a consultation with the brain surgeon who operated on me that night, only 10 days before I collapsed over the phone. And I think probably him recanting to me all the things to look out for probably was, was really helpful in, in the end up. Why had you had a consultation with him? Because I had this AVM, so I kind of had a yearly 
very very short checkup. All oh, right, so that's just, just coincidence. Yeah, that that... complete coincidence. I hadn't actually um, seen him. I think it was about two years, and it just so happened that um, a different consultant for the the skin cancer had had said, "Oh, it's been a while since you've seen Mr. St. George's name is," and referred me back on to him just to make sure things were okay. You know, like you say, you were really scared. Yeah. Is that different from when you were younger? I mean, I just wonder as you get older and you realise what death can mean. Yeah. Is it more frightening? Of course it is. I think when you're younger, there is that feeling of invincibility. Mm -hmm. When I was younger and took unwell, it was such a shock because no one else had ever been unwell. But at this point, I think, especially with this year as well, there's a lot of mortality around us, isn't there? So it became a bit more real. Are you frightened of dying? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, it's not something I've particularly thought about to I've been so focused on just getting better and obviously like everyone, so much to live for and so much that I want to do and I want to achieve, both for me and my family and for, for my constituents now as well, um, and for Scotland. But I didn't, I've not really ever got myself to the point of like being really worried about what could come because I think I've been, I've managed to come through it. And yet you've been so close so many times. Yeah, yeah. Now when I was 19 years old and, and flying mm. at that point, I was, I was in second year at university and having pretty much the time of my life. I couldn't, couldn't have been having more fun and things couldn't have been going better for me. Left school, you know, great grades and went to, went to a course at uni studying politics. Everything was, was fantastic, really. Made good friends at uni and doing really well. And then this kind of hit and it was like a bomb dropped on my, on my life and just sort of everything kind of unfolded at that point. I was planning on doing a politics degree and then doing the PQDE and being a modern studies teacher at that point. That was always my, my plan. And then when I took on well at university, um, there was a there was a boy uh, from Sky actually who was in my the ward that I was in the Teenage Cancer Trust ward at the Beatson and just it it broke my heart watching him because he came from Sky his mum was still there and he was completely alone and staying in the Pond Hotel next to next to the Beatson uh, for eighteen weeks or something to undergo his treatment and I just thought. That's his, because his mum couldn't afford to take like a couple of weeks off work to be there with him. And I just thought that's that's the inequality that exists here. This is what we're needing to tackle. We need to make things better for people. They kept telling me when I was unwell that the best outcomes come when you've got your family around you. It's not just the medical outcomes, it's the it's the kind of support network that you've got around you. I just thought that that boy's disadvantaged from the start. He's how's he ever gonna get the best outcome? if that's the situation that he's in. And it's because she couldn't have survived on something like universal credit, because it's just not enough money to get by and to support a family and to run a house. And that, it literally broke me thinking about it. I remember my mum saying to me, you need to think about yourself. But it was, I just couldn't get him out of my head. It just really, really got me. What was his name? And did you speak to him about it? Kind of briefly, it was that awkward way where I didn't want to upset him by talking to him about it, but so do you see that as quite a pivotal moment in I think, political thinking? I think that was when I realised that I wanted to do something like 
actually tangible to make things better or to try and make things better. And why, so what, you were 19, about 19, 19 at that point, yeah. right. And you're seeing that happen. Why do you immediately then think that's a Westminster issue? Or did you, was it just a political issue? It was a political issue for me, yeah. Right. The you know what it's like in politics? The opportunity came up to stand for Westminster yeah. and, and I took that opportunity. No, but looking at John in particular. Oh, because, of the, because of the benefits issue. And at that point, all the benefits were reserved to it. And obviously, the majority of them still are around Westminster control. Mm -hmm. And I thought this, wouldn't, this kind of thing wouldn't happen in an independent Scotland. It wouldn't. So had you already got to the point of thinking SNP independence? Yeah. 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 Had you joined the party at that point? I joined the party when I left uni. Right, okay. So 20, late 2014, early so I guess I'm, I guess I'm a bit like your mum here. I'm thinking yeah. you're um, you're 19, you've got cancer, you're in the hospital, and you're actually watching your politics start yeah. to grow because you're watching real life things happening. Yeah. Do you know what happened to John? No, I don't. You don't know if he went home or got better. No, or... it became that was a really really difficult part of being unwell at that age. Was that the group of friends that we made? Um, not all of them made it, so. It became difficult to make kind of tangible friendships because obviously you were losing so many people and we lost a lot of friends that way and we didn't want to, you almost don't want to become too good. You don't want to become like too close to people because obviously you didn't lose them. It's kind of a lengthy process but I'd had a mole on my face from when I was a really like small child. I'd had it removed when I was 17 and then Kind of they called it a spitz nevis which is an unusual kind of mole for a, a young person to have and then they sort of got regular checkups i think it was either six monthly or yearly between 17 and 19 when it then developed further so even at that point were you aware of the risk or the dangers no i literally I, I think my parents probably thought about it but i hadn't in my head i think again that's that invincibility of being young hadn't even considered that it would be anything, um, you know, dangerous or, or sort of scary in that respect. But when I was 19, it was a sort of, I was, I think I was put on sun cream. Yeah, I was put on sun cream. And I, I felt a lump in my face where they removed, removed the mole before and kind of feeling that there was quite a significant size lump in my face. and obviously spoke to my parents about it and got and phoned the consultant who'd removed them all previously. Sorry. <laughs> it's not a cough. <laughs> we'll say that. So awkward. Um, and he <coughs> he got me in really quickly to see him and again still wasn't thinking that it was anything serious. Someone had kind of mentioned it could be scar tissue from the previous surgery. So clung on to that the way you do, you cling on to anything that's positive, don't you? Yeah. And they took me in for the in for surgery quite fast, just basically to check and see what it was. Again, didn't let my head go to anywhere dark. I honestly, the, the next part came as the most horrific shock to me because I just hadn't even mentally prepared myself for it. They, um, so they woke me up. When I woke up after the surgery, I was sitting with my mum. My dad was had came up to see us. And we were like, oh, it's fine, just, I'm absolutely fine, like, you go home, that's, it's cool. And then the, the surgeon came round and the lovely man, he's, he's just amazing, Mr. Scott, fantastic. And he said, um, we think it's a bit more sinister than what we initially had thought. And 
kept me like a ton of pics. I mean, those words, what yeah. does that feel like? Just shock, shock and despair. I can't really, there's no, there's no other way to despair. And your mum and dad aren't there that Mum was there, my oh, dad right. had went home, yeah. So, we just both, at this point, they're saying they think it's, it wasn't, it wasn't definite, it was we think it's more sinister. They basically said there was a sort of kind of cobweb of strands coming off this this um, this lump and going into the, the nerves and the, the muscle and the, the bone in my face. And but they would need to, to test it and do the pathology to make sure. That's it's it's scary, but you're not there yet. You're not at that point of the total despair and sort of destruction of what that would do to your life. It's it's um, it's just a maybe at this point. So you so cling to that. I think that's it. Like especially especially when you're younger, you cling to it. I think. What about your mum at that point? I mean, we're just just kind of a bit break down a bit, don't you? Yeah. Especially because the, I'd woken up from the surgery and I was so bright and so everything had went so well, and we'd obviously said to my dad to go home and then. It's like, could you please come back and get this right now? Uh -huh. And then obviously a couple of weeks later, when the results came, I think it's three weeks later when the pathology results came through, they asked us to come up. And this maybe shows my naivety at this point, or just that I was young and hadn't quite processed what was to come. But the, um, the, the surgeon phoned and said, could you come up and see us at 6.30 tonight? And I didn't even think there was anything, I didn't. But now, obviously, it's like, why didn't I see that that was a really strange time for an appointment? Mum and Dad's faces just fell. And why are we, you know, making an issue out of this? But it was because he wanted to tell me before before the weekend. Yeah. And that it was, it was kind of the, the outcome we'd not been hoping for. Um, he, took, he took me and my parents into a room told us that it was melanoma and I felt embarrassed because I didn't know what melanoma was. Just I saw the tears in my dad's eyes and I knew it wasn't good. But I mean that shows you I hadn't in that time between the the surgery and that I hadn't Googled what the way we all do what melanoma was because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that that was the word used to describe it. Um, and that probably is a young person. I think now it would be a very different story. And at that point, did it even, I mean, not knowing what he actually means, but seeing your dad upset, you Yeah, clearly... it's, it's a different thing, isn't it, seeing your, your dad upset? Yeah, so you clearly understood that this is something major. Yeah. Did you ask any questions at that point? Yeah, I think I was just, I think well, my major thing was how do I get this out so that I can get back to my life because like I said, my, I was doing great and everything was going so well that that had always been mad. That's always been my attitude is how do we then make it better to so that we can carry on and pick ourselves up. Yeah. And what was the answer? As soon as we can, basically. And it was quite it was quite a fast process to be fair. <laughs> quite a long a long recovery in in the sense of getting back to where I was. But we got there. Were you bothered at, I mean at that age were you bothered about things like, this is my face? Yeah, that was the biggest thing. The absolute biggest thing. And then, so that was, I'd had the surgery 
the when I was 17 to take away the, the moles, I had a tiny little scar on my face, which I remember my parents saying to me at the time, you need to weigh up whether you want a mole on your face or the scar. And when the when I saw the, the surgeon that done that, he said it'll only be a teensy little scar, you won't even notice it. And I, I didn't really, at the time, it, it was so small and insignificant when you're, like, when you're 17, so I was quite content with how that was, but then at 19, the operation to take away the initial lump, the scar probably doubled in size, and I was quite upset about that. But then the one to take away that surgery kind of made it even longer. And then when I was 21 again, the scar I've been like, and I was just each time it happened, I got more and more upset. Found it harder and harder to come to terms with. How did you? Yeah, well, yeah. I remember someone saying, "It was a." Someone saying to me, you just need to accept it. I thought that's not really how you, you do that because you can't just come to terms with it. It's taken what I've been through this time for me to come to terms with my scar actually. So Yeah. Um, I used to edit my photos in a sort of vain attempt to, to hide my scar because I was so embarrassed by it. And I suppose when it's your face, you're seeing it every day. And that's it. And it's what it's what you're, you're presenting to the world. It's not something that you can hide. It's if you're wanting to, and obviously the role that I was wanting to do, that's what you're having to, to put forward and that's your public. It's what everyone's seen, it's what's on the leaflets, you know, it's it's what you're putting out there. Um, and I could never see people like my parents and Sean would say to me, you know, that's what's made you you, that's what's kept you here. And I would just, I would get upset and frustrated when people would say that because you don't understand, even they do. And but it's taken this time waiting up, um, not being able to you know move my left hand side, but having not as much hair. I mean, probably about a third to half of my hair was shaved off, mm-hmm. right down to like, the bone. Very cute, wasn't it? Well, <laughs> I was a bit unsure, but neurosurgeons are not hairdressers, <laughs> put it that way. But yeah, obviously, I had a huge scar in my head when I woke up. Yeah, and I thought don't let yourself get down about this one because this is what saved you, this is why you're here. And then when I then took a minute to think about that, I thought, why am I then, why am I then upset about the scar on my face? And it, it has always felt different. I've got scars on my hands and in other places. Don't I don't care about them. Um, it's always the one on my face that's been different, but you know, I actually just feel, I actually feel really proud of it now. I'm quite, um, quite accepting of it. I don't. I don't feel the need to pile on the foundation and to to hide that part of me anymore. I feel. I feel ready to, to present that part of me to the world now. I get totally get what you're saying in terms of people not knowing what to say. People don't know what to say in these kind of situations. I'm. I'm guilty of that as well. But the. I think everyone tried their level best, but I actually shut people out because I just didn't know what to, what to do or what to say when I spoke about this cancer stuff um, before the election. That was the first time I'd properly, properly spoken about it, and that was years down the line. Did you, is part of that not wanting to be reminded that you are Amy with cancer or had cancer? You're yeah, just Amy. That's that. You know, that's what I want. I don't want. I call it the bracket after my name. So the bracket after my name was Amy, who who beat cancer twice, and then it was the bracket after my name was Amy, who beat Joe Swinson, and then it was the bracket Amy, who's had a stroke. I just want to be Amy. See the thing about the this the, the vanity, if yeah. you like. Do you is that hard to express because you're almost having to go, 
Look, I'm really glad I'm alive when I play it, but, but it, of course it's a big part of yeah. who you are and how you feel about yourself, regardless well, of how, what other people it. think. And it comes in waves, or it used to come in waves anyway, that I could be totally flying and everything was going great, and then suddenly I'd just get really, really down about how, how I looked and how my scar looked. And it would come at random times. I remember being at Duty Free in, in the airport going on holiday, and try, you know, you'd try on all the different makeups at Duty Free and thinking, I just hate my scar, and I thought about it the whole holiday. And then you're like, why did I just let myself get so down about that? I'm here. Yeah. And that's the attitude I'm maintaining this time, is just don't let yourself get down about it. You're here, and things are going well, and who cares if there's a scar in your face? And presumably other people, it doesn't matter that other people say to you, you look lovely, it doesn't, you can't no. see it. it, it's about you. Yeah, it actually it annoyed me when people said that they couldn't see my scar because I was like, you can, why are you, why are you saying that you can? Yeah. Like, you're just, you're trying to make me feel better, but actually it's making me feel worse. Just, just be honest with me. Because what now, else could you do? Now about? I don't believe that you think it looks good because you've told me you can't see it and I know you can see it. So, you know, it's, it's all that kind of thing that you do in your head, you know, you yeah. know what it's like. I know. And so, was there a point where you kind of just came to terms with that? Because as you've said, you put yourself up in the public eye. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing. Yeah, that was, um, that took its toll. I think just in terms of, I hate getting my, I hated getting my photo taken. And I used to, I used to edit my photos like I've just told you. No. So having that control taken away from me was a huge sacrifice for me to make. In terms of like, you know, photographers coming and taking a photo and that sinking feeling of seeing a photo and being like, oh, I can see my scar so badly in that. Like, I can't believe they've used that on, on this article or whatever. And not even noticing how good the article was because all I could focus on was was the photo, and then not wanting the photos that I posted to look different from the ones that were, you know that way. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's obviously been a, a huge issue for me and a real worry for me. But now I'm like, take the photo. Do you think you're different from other people your age? I think. I've maybe just got a wee bit more life experience. Because you've got quite a wise head. Yeah, I've always kind of had a bit of a mature <laughs> sense about me, I think. Right. But but, you, and I guess it's too hard for you to say, is that because of your experience? Well, that's it. Like, I think when I was younger, especially when I was probably 19, it was, it was the most noticeable because I'd obviously been a teenager with cancer and a teenager without. I've never been an adult without these things having happened to me. So it's, I don't know what it would have been like otherwise. Yeah. But do you think it gives you, I don't know, I mean, having, I'm not belaboring the point, but having almost like touched your own mortality, is there a, is there a sort of, right, I've just got, I've got a role now, I've got something to do, I've got a direction in life. I think I was happy, obviously, to, to find that direction, because like I said, I needed something to focus on, something to keep me going, so uni helped me get through, get through the skin cancer issue, and then joined SNP afterwards, started working feeling, and that's always been my purpose since then. I've always had that direction and that goal. So I worked for Aileen, then I started working for Rona, and then done the children's panel stuff, and I've now forged my own path. And why did you want to take this? I mean, I don't understand why people want to stand yeah. for a lecture. Yeah. Um, what made you do that? I, I thought I could win, and I thought I could do a better job than who was doing it already. So. And let's let's try and, and do a better job than, mm. and let's try and get independence for Scotland. 
Because it is such a strange step to take in life. Yeah. You're allowing the electorate to decide I know. your future. I know. It is. It's an interesting one. It is. I, I love campaigning and I love the buzz that you get from elections and I love the feeling of, of putting putting that, you know, trust and faith and hope in the electorate to see if, if they'll choose you. And they did, fortunately. Did your family have any reservations about that, given everything you'd been through and also knowing how you felt about your appearance? I think the it? I think the being in the public eye thing was I think my mum was a bit taken aback that I wanted to, to do it. And when I then yeah, I mean it was understandable of course. She was like, Don't know how you're gonna do this to yourself and what's gonna happen. I think like you said, always having a focus. What happens after the election if you lose? That was the kind of issue. I've never went into something, you know, saying what happens if I lose or if I don't win or what happens if I fail. Let's try and do the very best we possibly can. Always poured my heart and soul into every single thing that I've done. I never, not, not someone that does something like half-heartedly. So I thought, let's give this the best possible chance we can do and we did it. So talk me through the actual winning of it. Still the most surreal moment. Just, yeah, incredible. I was, I was sitting in here with my mum, I got a blow dry, just just in case there was someone there to take my photo. As, as you know, That was the kind of thing that I was thinking of, like just in case someone's there to take my photo, and then I ended up winning. Yeah. But obviously the kind of, the few days leading up to the election were, were incredible because it was very, very clear something had changed in Eastern Berkshire. I think the tone of, um, of Joe's interviews had painted her in a very different light to what people had seen her previously and people all across Eastern Berkshire were then like a bit sort of apprehensive and weary and I was getting sort of love and respect but you know, just like sometimes you feel like you're in a bubble the way Twitter is it's yeah. like a bubble and you're like is this is this actually what's happening on the ground but we're getting it in doorsteps and people saying I heard Joe Swinson never turned up to hustings I'm like that you know what hustings are like people don't normally, it's the same like 50 people that show up to every hustings that you go to in each constituency. So like people are talking to me about hustings. This is true, this has never happened before. And just, I was getting such positive vibes from people and on, on election day, like at the polling stations, I was getting thumbs up like left, right and centre. And I'm like, something's going on here. And you're sort of, sort of doing like little polls in our heads of like a couple of hundred people just to see who would say, you know, if someone gives you a thumbs up, you're like, they've definitely voted. If they give you a smile, so perhaps that kind of, a, you know, that sort of idea. Um, and we're like, this was, I mean, we had it almost neck and neck, which is obviously what the result ended up being. Yeah, it was slightly, slightly in my favour, but, but almost, almost close. Did you feel for Joe? Of did, yeah. <coughs> we're all human beings, you know. You can't not feel, feel for someone who's just lost their job in such a public way. And for our family and for our, for our staff as well, of course. Can you imagine yourself in that position? Well, as a politician, you kind of have to, don't you? Because you don't. I'm not sure everyone does. Though. You don't have a way, yeah. But you don't know what can happen at the next election. If you stand, you you're putting yourself up to to allow that to happen, or you know. But the idea being, my my commitment to this job is that I'm being there for the people of Eastern Berkshire as much as I can. And that's something that's really, really frustrated me about being unwell this time. And the pandemic as well, is not being physically present in my, in my constituency day in, day out. Obviously we're helping more people than we ever have, but 
not having that physical interaction with people is very different and not kind of physically being there for them is, is very, very strange. But I think if you are there for people and you're visible in your constituency and you're doing the very best you can for them, then when you get up in that podium on election night, you should have every faith in yourself that you should be re-elected. And that's how I want to feel, hopefully, in, in five years' time. So yeah, this part of the show used to be a kind of general rant about things that were getting on our nerves, but actually it's, it's become a, a kind of much wider thing. And really this week is, is about another bad week without wishing to be too negative, isn't it? It's about a bad week for political debate in general along a number of issues that have been rolling on for a while and are going to continue to roll on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with you completely. A bad week for political discourse, um, I, and from quite an unexpected area, I guess. I mean, the forensic medical services brackets victim of sexual offences brackets Scotland bill um, is a really well overdue piece of legislation designed to improve access to healthcare services for victims of rape, um, and it goes back certainly for me in terms of writing about it back to 2017 when there were horrific revelations of women who'd been raped in Scotland who were having to wait days um, going unwashed because they were waiting for a female medical examiner to be able to examine them. And Rape Crisis Scotland was very much at the fore of campaigning to get better services for women, quite rightly. And actually, it was even worse than that, because I can remember writing about this, that actually in 2013, the Health Secretary and the Justice Secretary at the time, having both men, I have to say, at that time, Alex Neil and who would have been the Justice Secretary? Oh, Kenny McCaskill at that time had agreed new protocols um, for better forensic services for women. And they basically sat on a shelf. And it was the revelations in 2017 that opened all of this up again. So, so far, so good. Um, politicians were to vote last week on those services being improved with um, getting more female examiners trained up, etc., Anyway, there was an amendment put into the bill by Joanne Lamont, the Labour MSP, a very doughty feminist campaigner herself, which basically said it was six little words and it was replace the word gender with sex, which was quite an important um, change. Uh, and it's been part of that debate about how the words gender and sex have been conflated over the years in all kinds of policy areas. But basically, that led to quite a furore, didn't it? It really did. And it was completely out of proportion. And it's just an example of how everything's being kind of brought together with, you know, debates around transgender issues and gender recognition reform. And actually, this was about future proofing the bill, about making sure it was absolutely accurate, that there was no doubt in future about what was meant. The fact that sex has a, a legal status. Um, and their legal protections around sex just made it clearer. That was all. It was nothing more than that. It was just a sensible amendment to make sure that the wording was absolutely clear. And the kind of arguments that were, were going off at sort of tangents about previous bills had the word gender and that was a problem. Well, that's a, that's a separate issue to, to go back and look at legislation that, that might have issues around wording. And... Um, and kind of the, the idea that, well, this won't actually help with the real issue of there not being enough female uh, forensic examiners. Well, actually putting this as a right in legislation 
is one step towards that. Obviously, it's not going to magically create female forensic examiners, but actually having that right there is important, stating it and then working towards it actually happening in reality so that women can really get this when they absolutely, absolutely need it. I mean, if there's one time where, you know, any kind of gender politics shouldn't come into this and it should just be about that woman getting what she needs and not being further traumatised, that's the time, isn't it? Well, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, I think the, the problem for me, and I wrote, I've written about it in the magazine, this issue, is that I, I don't, be, I can't believe we've got to a place where women who have been sexually brutalised, that they are expected to run the gauntlet of what has become this gender ideology, just so that they can specify they want a woman to examine them rather than a man. And, you know, I, I spoke, it was heartbreaking. I spoke to women over the week that that debate was happening, women that had been raped, a woman whose daughter had been gang raped. And um, they they were being called bigots and they were being called transphobes for insisting that a woman carries out, you know, what must be, as you say, the most hellish of procedures after you've been violated by a man. Just horrendous. But I think this this was almost, in a way, inevitable, but it was just that this was the first opportunity for a vote on something that then has leached into another debate. And, I, you know, I think we are still to see much more of the fallout of all of this. I would watch this space in the next few weeks um, to see what happens. But do you know, Jenny, this is one time where I can most definitely say I think politicians should do something about this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Politically Speaking. Remember to share this podcast with all your friends and colleagues. Plus, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And remember to check out the latest news from all of us at hollywood.com. Oh, and if you hear someone say, I'm not interested in politics, tell them you know a podcast that can help them with that. <laughs>